The Rite of Spring is not just a famous orchestral piece, it's a ballet in two parts, two scenes if you like, or even two short acts. And there's a marked difference between the two parts, both musically and dramatically. The action of the first part takes place on an early summer's day, amid green fields at the foot of a sacred hill where Slavonic tribes have gathered for their spring games. That's the description by Stravinsky's collaborator on the project, the painter and anthropologist Nicholas Rurich. It was he who supplied so many of the ballet's ethnographically specific details that are so important to the ancient effect of these pictures from pagan Russia, as the ballet's called on its title page. By contrast, the second part of the ballet takes place at night, at the top of the sacred hill. Rurich calls this scene a celestial mystery. Maidens perform their secret games on the holy hill amid magical rocks. To judge by his pictures, Rurich seems to be thinking here of a stone circle like Stonehenge. He goes on, The maidens choose their chosen victim, whom they glorify. Now she will dance her last dance to be witnessed by the elders who have dressed in bear skins, as the bear is the ancestor of mankind. The elders will offer up the chosen victim to the sun god, Yurilo. So, between the first and second acts, we've gone from light to dark, from low to high, from green grass to mysterious stones, and from the mating rituals of young boys and girls to human sacrifice. Because people so often talk about the Rite of Spring in terms of the music alone, and then usually in order to concentrate on the music's supposed modernness, its dissonances and pounding rhythms, they often forget that it was first intended as a drama. The opening of this second part, for example, begins as a kind of prelude or curtain raiser, transporting us to the mysterious world of that sacred hill in the middle of the night. Despite the Rite's reputation for violence, this nocturnal music is as sensuous and atmospheric as that of any early 20th century composer, and it shows just how close the young Stravinsky had come to the art of his friends Debussy and Ravel. And yet, despite the gorgeous sounds, this is certainly not Debussy or Ravel. 
In the opening bars, it's true, Stravinsky puts down a mysterious and rather old-fashioned sounding chord of D minor in the oboes and horns. At the same time, though, the rest of the woodwind are moving around restlessly in another key, a semitone higher, D-sharp minor. There's an interesting connection here with the dance The Augurs of Spring from the first part of the ballet. The Augurs begins with these famous stomping sounds. There, the harmony was made of two common chords a semitone apart. Here, too, we have the same relationship, a sustained oboe and horn chord of D minor and all the other instruments moving around a semitone higher. As so often in this ballet, once Stravinsky's found an image or an idea, a chord or a harmony, he stays there. And that's the point. Stasis. Or rather, stasis versus movement, all summed up in these opening bars of part two. There's soon another element, though, a tiny scrap of melody that could have come from any one of hundreds of folk songs. In an early account of the ballet, it's described as the mysterious chant of the maidens. This chant of the maidens also doesn't change. It's simply repeated or used like the links of a chain to make long lines of melody that stretch right through this introduction and into the first proper dance of the second half of the ballet, the mystic circles of the young girls, or, as Stravinsky's notes have it, the choral dances and secret games of the young girls. And the same principle is true of the next idea, which is actually closely related to the maiden's chant, despite its very different sound. Here's its first appearance. In the original ballet, this curious rocking figure for two trumpets accompanied the moment when the maidens cast the spell to find out which one of them was to be the chosen victim. And although at first glance it seems dissimilar, you can hear how this magic spell idea is connected to the maiden's chant. If you listen to it as Stravinsky first wrote it, played on one trumpet...
It was an inspired idea of the composer to divide that original image and turn it into two voices. Both the maiden's chant and this spell music are repeated constantly over the next few pages, and not only repeated straight, but twisted and turned on their heads to build chords and other lines of the music. The rarefied, almost impressionist atmosphere of the opening of this second half of the rite continues into the ceremonial choral dances and secret games of the maidens. Under a rich harmonization of the maiden's chant on six solo violas, the lower strings, the cellos and basses, begin a swaying dance of shifting subtlety. And we hear a curious new accompaniment, again a sound of almost French refinement. And over the top of that, a new folk tune, rather similar to some of those in the first part of the ballet. And like them, it's derived from a real folk tune, which Stravinsky noted down in his sketches like this. Once he wrote it down, what the composer did with this tune was divide it into tiny individual fragments and then repeat and reorder those fragments to produce an entirely new and longer synthetic folk song.
The maiden's chant returns, and the girls have chosen their sacrificial victim. With that soft call on four horns, the chosen one falls into the circle created by the dancers. This dramatic moment of extreme intensity is answered by a glittering web of high string and flute harmonics. Over that shimmering sound, the chant begins again, and again the chosen one falls back into the circle of her fellow dancers as they prepare to glorify her. What launches the glorification is another of those outrageously striking images that people love to remember from the Rite of Spring: a single bar of eleven equal thumping crotchets for strings, four timpani, and a bass drum. And now to the dance itself. I've already made much in these two programs of the way Stravinsky used real sources from folk music, sources which for many years went unrecognised and have only recently been discovered by scholars. Folk pipes at the beginning of the ballet, and then folk songs of various kinds, Russian and Lithuanian, as the ballet unfolds. And one of the most remarkable aspects of the way Stravinsky used this material was how he was able to adapt and reshape it to make it serve as whatever he wanted in his piece. That's a talent, of course, that he kept throughout his life. 
But what possible folk sources could there ever have been for music of the overwhelming violence and intoxication of this glorification? I think the important thing is to go back to first principles. Let's listen for a moment to a real Russian peasant women's ritual dancing song, a real song that those women might have sung on the top of the sacred hill, a charavod. <laughs> That certainly doesn't sound much like the glorification of the Chosen One, but it does contain several pointers. First, there's the way the song goes round and round, combining a small number of individual elements, bits of the tune if you like, to make a musical process, a machine that could go on and on. And then there's the very important point, crucial for Stravinsky, that the musical material doesn't change. The constituent parts of the machine remain what they are. There's no progress, no development, no cadence, no feeling of transformation or arrival. The music is what it is, where it is. And exactly the same could be said of the Stravinsky. Though the big difference with the Stravinsky, of course, is that his dance has many more elements in it. And although those elements are linked to one another, they're also discrete, separate from one another. The different musical building blocks follow each other in different orders, but they never get confused. Instead, the ear bounces backwards and forwards between them. Let's look a little more closely at those building blocks. To make them easier to hear, we asked our orchestra to play them at half speed, so the ear has time to take in the details. First comes a lopsided umpa in five time, and we hear that bar twice and then another bar which takes the opening of that umpa and prolongs it into a different shape. So we've already got one idea made up of two shapes, the first of which is repeated. The next and highly contrasted idea consists of a low thumping or pulsing. and a sort of fountain of sound leaping up to the highest registers. So that's already two distinct ideas or groups of ideas. The original umpa or vamping, and this low pulsing with a fountain of sound leaping into the air. But now Stravinsky adds a third idea. And a fourth idea. And then he adds a fifth one, an eerie, low throbbing that appears about halfway through this dance, with strings. And on top of those strings, low woodwind and percussion. So, five different ideas or elements. Now notice the way Stravinsky places them alongside one another, not developing them, but shuffling them and reordering them. 
and eventually, at the height of the tumult, introducing one further sixth element, an ecstatic fanfare, so loud that with a bit of luck, you'll leap off your chair. Several points are worth making straight away, and the first concerns what's sometimes called the fixity of this music. The fact, as I said earlier, that it's not going anywhere. It doesn't develop, it doesn't change. The same chords and rhythms keep churning round. On the other hand, there's the complicated matter of what appears the most irrational part of this music, the different changing orders in which the five or six contrasted ideas appear. Constantly changing the order is how Stravinsky satisfies that basic requirement of a piece of music that it should always be interesting. But he's also doing far more than that. The changing orders are, in a sense, like the six different ideas themselves, part of the substance of this music. And if I go back to my six ideas and concentrate only on the order Stravinsky places them in, then I quickly notice a couple of things my ear should have told me the very first time I heard the piece. One is that the first bar of the dance, that five-time umpa, is repeated almost as many times as all the other ideas put together. In other words, this bar is the basic image of the dance, and everything else is essentially an interruption. And the second thing I notice is that the fourth, fifth and sixth ideas only occur in a clump in the middle of the piece. Either side of that clump, it's just the first three ideas Stravinsky's playing with. In other words, underneath the noise, the dance is actually in a three-part form. A, B, A. Quite simple, really, with the first A being about as long as the other two sections put together. You may have noticed that immediately, of course, but I know I didn't the first time I heard this music. And one of the reasons I didn't is that my ear was simply overwhelmed by the sheer noise and drama of all the clashes and collisions. In other words, Stravinsky was forcing me to listen in close-up, almost as though I was standing right inside the orchestra. 
I think if I had to choose one quality of the Writer's Spring that makes it the revolutionary piece it is, I'd name this one. That this is a piece which forces one to listen to music as though from extremely close, in a way no composer had ever asked us to listen before. The glorification of the Chosen One ends abruptly, as though cut off in midstream. There's a sudden bar of silence, and then the mood changes. The elders of the tribe have arrived, dressed in the skins of their supposed ancestors, the bears, and they dance to cool down the spirits of those bear ancestors upon the sacrifice that's about to be made. new fanfares are in some ways one of the most traditional sounding images in the writer's spring. They could almost come from something by Rimsky-Korsakov with their combination of a fixed chord of C major in the flutes and clarinets and the upper trumpets and trombones with simple moving parts in the oboes and the rest of the trumpets and horns. Even the rhythm, which is tricky but clearly derived from the shifting meters of folk music, is something Rimsky might have done. But what sounds not at all like Rimsky is the thundering bass line beneath. And as that thunder gives way to a swaying rhythm, the congregation of the elders begin their diestro, their ritual action, over a simple percussion beat, two bassoons, and another bassoon and a contrabassoon. tumble into the depths. The percussion are soon joined by strings and five French horns, making yet another version of the original stomping chord. This ritual action of the elders is a particularly clear example of Stravinsky's non-developmental, non-transitional approach to material. Sometimes, as we heard in The Glorification of the Chosen One, he places inflexible ideas in shifting orders or chains of repetition one after another. But sometimes, as here, he places the ideas on top of one another, so that over that swaying, pulsing accompaniment, other instruments enter creating a kind of tapestry of sound. 
One of the new elements here is yet another of the composer's borrowed or adapted folk songs. The peculiar sound of this song is the result of the scoring, pairing a delightfully exotic bass trumpet. with two ordinary trumpets above it. That tune makes its first appearance in Stravinsky's sketchbooks in an extremely compressed form, like this. So you can see how much work Stravinsky must have done to transform it into what we now hear. And so to the last dance of all, the sacrificial dance of the Chosen One. This even more than the dance of the earth in part one of the Rite of Spring, or the glorification of the Chosen One that we heard earlier, must surely be the most notoriously difficult and modern moment in the whole of this famously modern piece of modern music still as difficult and modern 90 years after it was written. Stravinsky revealingly said of this music that when he thought of it, I could play it, but not at first write it down. And this comment is borne out by his sketchbooks, which provide a fascinating insight into how he went about composing this music that sounds so unlike anything written before. In his first sketches for this passage, Stravinsky wrote out just a few bars on three staves, like a rather complicated piano piece. But what really gives the game away is that he puts letters over the top of nearly every bar. The first bar he calls A. The next bar Stravinsky labels B. Then comes C, which is just A but half the length. Oddly enough, D in Stravinsky's sketch is exactly the same as B, so I don't know why he gave it a different letter. But then there's bar E. And finally, an extended version of E, which he thought of labelling F before changing his mind and crossing that out. All of those chords, in one way or another, are versions of that same original stomping chord from the Orgies of Spring. But what follows is even more curious. In the bottom right-hand corner of the same page on which these sketches are written, you can see where Stravinsky actually gave up using musical notation and just went on composing for a while with a string of letters. A, B, C, D, E, A, B, D, E. And then he got tired of that and just wrote, etc. In other words, on this page we actually see him coming up with the idea we've already seen at work in The Dance of the Earth and The Glorification of the Chosen One, the idea of five or six tiny fragments of music, each just a bar or so long. 
the stream of letters without any music, shows Stravinsky playing around with these ideas in different orders, like a child playing with cut-out scraps of coloured paper. So simple, but one of those ideas that changed the course of music. Essentially, in this first section of the dance, Stravinsky's switching backwards and forwards between just two of those ideas from his original sketch of five or six. Here's the first of them, played at half speed, so you get time to listen inside the tricky rhythms and harmonies. And this is the second one. When I was talking about the glorification of the Chosen One, I mentioned that although the alternation and shuffling of these tiny fragments give the impression of tremendous complexity and unpredictability, when you stand back from the music, you begin to see a much clearer shape behind it, a relatively simple three-part form, A-B-A. Much the same thing happens in this final sacrificial dance, except that this time the shape is a good deal more complicated. The original sketched material, these tiny stomping fragments, are always used by Stravinsky to make a kind of chorus, a chorus that's always different each time it comes back, but which is made of recognisably the same images. In between the choruses are three verses, each one of which is quite separate from and extremely boldly contrasted with the chorus. Here's the end of the first chorus and the beginning of the first verse. brilliantly unexpected throbbing at the beginning of the verse. is made up of single notes on the strings and low bassoons, but double notes, very difficult to play, on the French horns. Then we have those weird interruptions from trombone, trumpets, violins, flutes and percussion, cutting right across the throbbing as though tearing it apart. This first verse is quite long, longer indeed than any of the choruses, and it rises to two separate climaxes. The first climax is deafeningly loud.
The second climax at the end of this first verse is quite different. The throbbing simply continues, and Stravinsky places on top of it this delirious wailing sound of high wind and strings with the piccolo trumpet again. Chorus returns as suddenly as it had stopped. Then we arrive at the second verse, and a thunderous drumming in the bass of the orchestra. Surely one of the most defiantly primitivist moments in this score. Through the clamour of that drumming, the booming horns of the elders urged the chosen one on to the coming sacrifice. The chorus returns for a brief moment, and then the third verse begins, transforming the atavistic music of the second verse into something new. There's the same drumming. And the same throbbing in the bass. But the horn calls have now become an ecstatic anthem in wind and strings. Together with trumpets. Sounding, and this is the really shocking thing, for all the world, like the end of an opera by Rimsky-Korsakov. And there's a great carillon of common chords in the clarinets and horns. It's curious there how, in these closing and apparently most modernistic moments of this mighty ballet, Stravinsky should have reached out for one last time to the ultra-Russian, ultra-nationalistic style of his old teacher Rimsky-Korsakov, and of course all those other 19th-century Russian composers who'd been such a great influence on him. It's almost as though before the final savagery of the closing chorus of this sacrificial dance. He'd felt the need to take his final leave of the old-fashioned musical language in which he'd been trained and brought up, before turning his face firmly towards the future and the new and exceedingly upsetting musical visions of this epoch-making score as we still see it today. For Stravinsky was quite young when he wrote this piece, and not even he himself can have completely understood what were the real implications of this seething tumult of new sounds and rhythms he'd discovered. 
as he himself commented at the end of his life and nearly half a century after he'd written this music, and perhaps even wistfully and a trifle ruefully, I was the vessel through which the rite passed. 